Uh, but if you weren't with us last Sunday, and we just kicked off this new series called Paradox. And, um, and here's the plan. Um, for the next 12 or so weeks, we're going to be looking at the life of this man named King Solomon. And you'll remember there were really three kings in the Bible, right? There was Saul, David, and Solomon. Those are the three major kings among many others. And, and we've called this uh, series Paradox because King Solomon really was a man of paradox. Um, on the one hand, uh, Solomon, you might remember, was without a doubt one of the wisest kings ever to rule God's people. And he had this, uh, this wisdom that was unparalleled. Prosperity and peace just thrived under his lead. But on the other hand, he made these choices that were just dumb. Um, let me just give you a couple of examples. Right? Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom. He could have asked God for anything. And because he asked for wisdom, God gave him insight unlike any other man on earth. Um, but he also had this harem of 700 women. Can you imagine 700? I'm just trying to keep up with three in my house. <laughs> 700 women who turned his heart from God. Solomon wrote books of scripture. Uh, you turn to Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. But he also then led Israel into the worship of pagan gods, the gods of his women. You might remember Solomon was the one who built the temple. Took him seven years. Solomon's great temple. And yet then he spent twice that time, almost 13 years, building himself his own house. And here's the reason for this series, right? Here's why I want us to pay attention to. Um, as we look at this man's life together over the, the next 12 weeks, um, what we're going to find is this mirror, I think, that causes us to evaluate our own lives of paradox. And by that, I mean, where do you find your faith and your life at odds with each other? What are the inconsistencies uh, in your walk with the Lord? And what's the solution to that disconnect? Because as you look at Solomon, you realize it's one thing to know the wisdom of God. It's another thing to actually put it into action and live it. So this morning, we're going to open up to 1 Kings chapter 2 in just a minute. And we're going to jump into this very lengthy and involved passage. Uh, fair warning, it's good, but it's, it's kind of like Baldy, right? Like it's going to be a tough hike. So we're going to buckle up this morning, put your boots on. We're going to read some scripture, and uh, what I want to do is we're going to unpack it. I'm going to turn this into really three sermonettes. We're going to read some scripture, unpack it, read some scripture, unpack it. And I want to encourage you to lean in with me, um, because this is kind of a complicated story. But it really boils down to three men. We're going to look at three men. In fact, if we can put those up on the screens here. And this morning, we're going to look at three men who all have the same problem under this new king named Solomon. Their names are Adonijah. Joab and Shimei. I worked really hard on those silhouettes. Are you proud of me? <laughs> Adonijah, Joab, and Shimei. Say it with me. Adonijah, Joab, and Shimei. And all three of these men, uh, they suffer from the same problem. All three of them carry this toxin that is a lust for power and a blinding pride that ultimately led to their total demise. Brian did a fantastic job setting up the stage for us last week. If you weren't with us, let me just catch you up as to where we've been. Um, King David is on his deathbed. What I should say was, was on his deathbed. He transferred his kingship over to Solomon amid quite a bit of drama. And right off the bat, David warns his son Solomon of bad actors in the kingdom. And he tells him quite literally to watch his back. And what we're going to find out this morning is that before Solomon can even get a foothold 
His leadership is attacked from within by those three men whose lust for power and blinding pride get the best of them. So let's look at these three together and uh, let's jump in. As I said, we're going to divide up our scripture into three segments. So to begin, we're going to read the first one, 1 Kings chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 13 to 25. So meet Adonijah, 13 to 25. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, do you come peacefully? And he said, peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, speak. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all of Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, speak. And he said, please, ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat down on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, and why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him for the kingdom also, for he's my older brother, and on his side are Abathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do to me more and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and he struck him down and died. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God. You know, I believe it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, if you strike at the king, you better not miss. Now, Adonijah is the half-brother of Solomon. He's been trying for some time now to usurp the throne from his brother. This time he figured, if I marry one of David's women, the now deceased king, I could exploit the cultural loophole, and in so doing, maybe I could take the kingship. And you got to give it to him. This man is clever, right? So he asked the king's mother if she would make the request on his behalf for this woman named Abishag to be his wife. When I was growing up in grade school, we had uh, this huge, massive pile of dirt in a, the playground that had been left over from nearby construction. And I remember we used to go out and play on this mound of dirt at recess. And uh, we would play this, this game, King of the Hill, you ever played that game? Yeah, you know that game. Everybody jumping up on the pile, right? And everyone on that pile has one goal in mind, right? Which is what? To be king. Now, if you're skinny and scrawny like myself growing up, this was quite the challenge. But if I could get a couple of my friends down at the base and they could fend the rest off, just before the bell rang, that meant for the rest of the day, I was king. Didn't happen often, but when it did... Boy, howdy, I was on cloud nine. You know, it starts in the schoolyard, right? But let's, let's face it. 
all of life is a power struggle, is it not? You know, it begins on the schoolyard, but then every aspect of our day includes these, these plays. It plays out in our families, in our marriages, in our friend groups. It involves small town politics and national elections. If you look at any dynasty or monarchy in the history of the world, it's the same game. King of the hill is always afoot. See, but this brother, uh, Solomon, Adonijah, he believed himself to be the rightful heir of David's throne. And he had good reason, right? He was the older brother, which meant culturally speaking, the seat was his. In fact, look back with me at 1 Kings 1 verse 5. If you have your Bibles, we'll put up on the screens too. 1 Kings 1 verse 5. And look at what he said from the very beginning. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. You know, I think it's worth noting, Adonijah's words really aren't that foreign for us. Right, from the moment that Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, that has been the rebellious word on every man and woman's heart in history. Deep down, somewhere in all of us, we all have this tendency to believe ourselves to be king. We never say it out loud, right? But I, I think in our heads, we, we often live as though we're masters of our own universes, as, as though I control every outcome of my life. It's interesting, you know, culturally speaking, Adonijah was in the right. The older brother always got the throne. I shall be king. But in his pursuit of power and this, this pride that came with it, he was completely off base because he was forgetting entirely who actually sits on the throne. So you'll remember from last week, Adonijah had already tried to usurp the throne. He had gathered up his friends, Joab and his brothers, the royal officials, and they went to this place called Enrogel, which is on the southeast side of Jerusalem. It's, it's this secluded spot behind these hills in the country. And in that hidden place, Adonijah staged a takeover. Now just consider the, the audacity of this moment. At that time, King David was still alive. And as his father sits vulnerable on hospice, Adonijah is already making moves on the chessboard. So King David finds out about this. He's furious because God had told him his son Solomon would sit on the throne. So he sends Solomon into Jerusalem riding his mule with his prophet Nathan who declares to all of Jerusalem, this is your king. Solomon takes the kingdom. So what happens next? Well, if you aim at the king, you best not miss. Adonijah, he knows he's in for it. He runs to the tabernacle, grabs holds of the horns of the altar as if to scream sanctuary, and he begs for mercy from this new king. And here's the crazy part. Round one, King Solomon spared his brother's life. This is what it says in verse 52, chapter one, verse 52. Solomon says, if he shows himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Now let's think about that. Let's leave that up on the screens for just a minute. The king says to his rebellious citizen, if you show yourself virtuous, you'll live. But if there's wickedness found in you, you shall die. Adonijah failed the test. You know, this is a soul-searching, I think, kind of statement, right? You've got a second chance, Adonijah. You're on parole. 
if you prove yourself worthy, you live. But if, if you continue in wickedness of these power grabs and your pride, you're done for. And yet it's not a page later that we find Adonijah can't help himself. He's been stewing on it, right? He's been, he's been uh, conniving, scheming. How do I get that throne? So he comes to his mother Bathsheba and he asks her for this woman Abishag to be his wife. He says, Ma, look, I know I lost the kingdom. I'm here in peace. Should have been mine. That's all details. I just want the woman. And at first glance, you might think, well, what's the big deal, right? The man's lonely. He, he lost the fight. Give him the consolation prize. See, but in Solomon's wisdom, he sees right through the ruse. There's something else at foot. Look at this again in verse 22. He says to Bathsheba, you might as well ask me for the kingdom as well. See, remember, Abishag was the young woman lying with King David on his deathbed. Look at this, chapter one, verses one through three. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he couldn't get warm. So his servants said to him, we gotta find a young woman. Verse three, so they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. See, Adonijah knew if he married Abishag, one of the previous king's women, then by marriage he could exploit the loophole and convince the people he was the legitimate king. Power is an intoxicating phenomenon, isn't it? I mean, this is a risky, and you could probably even say reckless maneuver. I will be king. Look again, chapter, one verses two, or chapter two, verse 15. Adam Isaac made this unique confession. He told Bathsheba, he said, the kingdom was mine. And how deceived was he? The kingdom was mine, but it turned about, and it became my brother's, he said, because it was from the Lord. Now that's where chewing on, right? Whether Adonijah believed it or not, by his own words, what just came out of his mouth was this unique confession. He said, look, I know it's God's plan for Solomon to be king, but God's word wasn't enough. See, in fact, look at this, 1 Chronicles 28, five through six. Look at what David had said years before all this went down. He said, of all my sons, the Lord had given me many. He's chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne over Israel. He said to me, it's Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I've chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. See, even though God's plan is for Solomon to sit on the throne, to Adonijah, it didn't add up. It didn't make sense. The world around him didn't make sense of it. That, that's what pride does, right? That's what lust for power does. It's deceiving. It's self-serving. Let me ask you, how many times do we read God's word and, and then look around us and in our own kingly voice, right, we tell ourselves, I, I, know, I know your word, God, I, I hear you, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I really think my plan's better. I'm gonna go with my God on this one. The world that we live in tells us to play by a different beat. We think, ah, I think I've got the better way. And I think this passage mirrors for us this revelation, right? There's this personal reflection in this word, and that is that in all of us, we have this intoxicating power that wants to be king. This is not an Adonijah problem. This is a condition wrought in all of us. Just consider, maybe even this morning, the last argument you had with your wife. 
didn't you want to be king? Or the last disagreement you fought over with your children or your grown children, was there not some kingship in you? The last fight you had with your siblings? We all want to be on top. Recently, a social scientist named Jonah Lair, he put together a study on the dangers of power in the social ladder. And as a part of this study, he asked these high-powered people, CEOs, presidents, about their convictions on speeding. And the question was, is it okay for you to speed? And if so, when? What he found was that those who were in high positions of high influence, they were far more likely to say it was okay for them to speed, unlike all those below them on the chain. And their rationale was they could speed because they had more important things to do. They believed their status outweighed the law around them. Look at this quote from Jonah. He said, when you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. They flirt inappropriately, tease in hostile fashion, and become totally impulsive. We've never seen that before, have we? You know, I think it's something worth praying for, right? Just think about this. Adonijah was the king's son. He was David's son. And now he's the king's brother. Just think of all the rights and privileges that came with that. He could have hung in that royal wake his entire life, and yet he tastes this moment of illegitimate power, and he's enticed by it. He was controlled by it, right? So much so that he was willing to walk away from God's word, willing to walk away from the second chance that Solomon gave him, and it cost him everything. This Adonijah, he was implicated actually in the same plot as a guy named Joab. Joab, uh, unlike Adonijah, Joab was a man of very legitimate authority. Uh, he was the general of King David's army. But Joab had the same problem. In fact, let's look at this. Uh, let's look at this. We're going to read verses 28 to 35 now, 28 to 35 of the second chapter of Kings. And I want you to meet Joab. When the news came to Joab, that being Adonijah's dad, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he's beside the altar, Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Job, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, We'll do as he said, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall the blood, their blood, come back on the head of Joab and the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for the house and for the throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. You know, when I think about Joab, um, I think Prigozhin. Remember the name Prigozhin? Wasn't that long ago. Prigozhin was the general of Putin's Wagner group, the private army. He's the one whose plane was just 
blew up in the sky randomly. Just a few weeks ago, uh, Putin called Prigozhin a talented person who made serious mistakes in life. A talented person who made serious mistakes in life. You talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Joab's story isn't that far off though, right? He was, he was anything but a man of self-control. Joab's greatest gift was his own demise. He was constantly using his military power in these corruptible ways. And I don't have time this morning to cover the stories. It might be something worth looking up this week. But under David, Joab killed, he murdered two men in his own revenge. He did it against the king's wishes, against the king's orders, and as such, he brought this blood guilt on the entire kingdom. David was a fearing, God-fearing man. He was a patient man, and he had spared his life. But on David's deathbed, his last words to Solomon were this warning about that man. He told him, this has to be dealt with. Watch your back. And so now we turn to our lesson, and Joab, the loyal general, has aligned himself not with Solomon, the rightful king, but with Adonijah. He hears Adonijah's been put to death, and now he too goes racing to cling to the horns of the altar, this symbolic way of gaining clemency. See, and yet again, Solomon won't have it, right? Joab is struck down for the same thing. Just like Adonijah, second chance was offered, but in his rebellion and in his pride, in his abusive power, he too dies. Are you picking up the pattern? You see the view yet? See, both men were spared by the king. Adonijah was spared by Solomon. Joab was spared by David. But in the end, they couldn't help themselves. They persisted in this wickedness. They succumbed to their own demise. If you prove yourself virtuous, said Solomon, you'll live. But if wickedness is found in you, you shall die. I want to show you one more man in this saga. Um, his name is Shimei. And we don't know much about Shimei, except for that's a pretty cool graphic, isn't it? Wagging his finger. Shimei, too, had a pride of problem with, uh, a problem with pride and power. And, you know, when I think of Shimei, I think of a, like a protester throwing rocks in the streets, screaming at the king. Uh, Shimei had really nothing to do with Adonijah's rebellion. You're like, what does this have to do with this story? Um, God's word tells us he wasn't in the coup. But Shimei hated authority. In 2 Samuel 16, during David's reign, um, Shimei was shouting, cursing at the king. He intentionally spread rumors that were false about King David, and when he finally came face to face with him, he actually threw stones at David's head. But again, David spared his life. We'll let my son deal with that. Instead of learning the lesson, now that Solomon is king, Watch how this plays with Shimei. Shimei is added again. Look at this in 1 Kings 2. We're going to read 36 to 46 now. 36 to 46. So this is on the tail end of Adonijah and Joab. Then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there. And do not go from there to any place whatsoever. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, what you say is good. As my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, son of Machat, king of Gath. 
And when it was told to Shimei, behold, your servants are in Gath, Shimei rose, saddled a donkey, and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place whatsoever, you shall die? And you said to me, What you say is good, I'll obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment which with I commanded you? The king said to Shimei, You know in your own heart all the harm that you did to David my father? So the Lord will bring back your harm on your head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. And the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. And he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. What do you do with a threat in your kingdom? You keep an eye on it, right? You keep your friends close, you keep your enemies closer. So Solomon says to Shimei, look, there's a lot of rebellion going on. I'm not sure who to trust right now. I'll let you live, but you have to stay in Jerusalem where I can keep watch on you. You got a history. As long as you do this, I'll spare your life. So Shimei agrees. Years pass. The freshness of the command fades. Some of Shimei's servants run away. And with the perfect excuse, he jumps on his mule and leaves the country just as he was told not to do. And now by the edict of the king, Shimei, too, is struck down. So let me put this in a pretty bow for you. Two things are now clear about Solomon and this kingdom that he's now set up from the very get-go. If you are found to be virtuous, you will live. If there's wickedness in you, you will die. And in Solomon's kingdom, like the, the troubling part is Solomon is the judge, the jury, and we'll say the shot caller. He's not quite the executioner, but he's certainly calling the shots for it. And I think when we consider, right, the pride and the... The problem of power in this kingdom, we also have to think about the paradox of King Solomon. He, he didn't exactly come out of all this clean, right? I mean, the guy wiped out every opponent in his kingdom. This is a bloodbath from the very get-go. He consolidated power by his own might. Look at how our passage says this ended. So King Solomon and his kingdom was established at his own hand. Not at God's hand, who is already doing the establishing. No, no, no. Solomon is king of the hill. And you got to give it to him, right? Solomon was a decisive king. He was a wise king. He didn't mince words. He enacted justice swiftly. But it seems to me like this, we're just in week two here. And King Solomon's reign is already a wreck. Everything seems broken. All the baggage and sins from his father's kingdom are already upon him, playing out again. You know, still today... I feel like if you look around you, you can find the same problem. We can still see it in our leadership. This problem of pride, this problem of a, a lust for power. And it seems to me, what this passage teaches us is this simple fact that we need a better king. Right, Solomon's not gonna do it. His kingdom's not gonna get us there. This, this hopeless mess of a situation is not going to lead us to a place of hope 
and restoration. Look at this in Matthew 12, 42. Look at what Jesus said. He said, a greater Solomon just arrived. See, and unlike King Solomon, who, who needed to eliminate all the threats to his kingdom, our king has no threat. Did you know that? Our king has no rival. Our king is all glorious, all divine. And unlike Solomon's kingdom, right, when we fall, when we stumble, when wickedness is found within us, it's not just a second chance that we're given. This king died for us. This king enacted perfect justice, not by our death, but by his death. I mean, I can hear Jesus Christ on the same throne of judgment, right, saying to us the same words as Solomon. If you show yourself to be virtuous, you'll live. If wickedness is found within you, you'll die. 1 John 1, 8 says, if you, have no, if you say you have no sin, you've deceived yourself, and the truth is not in us. Romans 6.23 tells us, and the wages of that sin is death. And like Adonijah, like Joab, like Shimei, if you're anything like me, you look back on your timeline and you can see the places where you've turned from the king and your own power and your own pride. And when you realize it, do you not want to go and cling to the same horns begging for mercy? See, but unlike Solomon, our king took our place. Our king sacrificed once and for all, not just for yesterday's sin, but for tomorrow's sin. Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by one single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Three men and their leader, all with the same problem. This quest for intoxicating power and this blinding pride. It seems to me the moral of this story is really twofold. One, we all want to be king. We all want uh, to be the, the top of our game and we know that power corrupts. And like Adonijah, like Joab, like Shimei, we know it won't last. But two, our judge is not some mortal king. Our judge and our defender is Jesus Christ. Thank God we have a king who saves, whose mercies are new every morning, who sanctifies us in holiness, whose love is patient, and whose patience and kindness leads us to repentance. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And yet, there can only be one king. And I think the question then that we're left with is, who sits on your throne? Who sits on the throne in your life? And if you give me the Sunday school answer, well, of course it's Jesus. Then let me ask a follow-up. Where then is there a paradox between what you believe and how you live? And how might God be calling you to let Jesus Christ reign on the throne where he belongs again. Let's ask God to help reveal that to us this week. Will you pray with me? Thank God we thank you for the drama that is your word, Lord. Even when we get to difficult passages like we have this morning, Lord, just the bloodbath. And we watch how somehow your mercy and your promise carries through these broken men. Lord, that you have promised that the, the throne of David will reign forever and that Jesus will sit on that throne. And um, God, we, we watch really almost as spectators this morning as we open your word and we see how many times that that promise could have 
failed, shouldn't have come to fruition. And yet by your sovereign hand, you have given us a better Solomon. So Lord, we thank you. God, we bring to you our, uh, and we confess to you our sin, Lord, of pride. and We wanna be our own monarch. We wanna be in control. God, we lay it back down to your feet. Give us humble hearts. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to cling to the altar hoping that we won't get struck down, Lord, for we know, we know that by his wounds, we are healed. That in freedom and for freedom's sake, Jesus Christ set us free. Lord, thank you for that gift. May we live that gift with every day of our lives. Lord, you are king. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.